G'day, Night Church. It's great to be together. I hope you've managed to make it here okay, not too wet. Um, I know I managed to get kind of a dump down of rain on my way in, but I've managed to dry off since then. So um, hopefully you've made it to church all right. Uh, let me just add my welcome to Elisa. It's great to, to have you here. It's great to be together as God's people. And I'm, uh, I count it as a real privilege to be able to walk us through God's Word now. Um, I've had a delightful time in Matthew 12 this week, and my prayer is that as we look at it together, that uh, God would speak to us through it, that He would um, teach us and shape us and change us by His Word. Um, I wanted to start off with a, one of my favorite quotes from an old theologian, uh, old as in long dead, 4th century, Augustine of Hippo, who says, Our souls are restless till they find their rest in thee. Our souls are restless till they find their rest in thee. Isn't that a beautiful image of a a restless soul finally coming to rest in Jesus? Well, we've been working through the book of Matthew in chunks as a church. Uh, Earlier in the year, we worked through chapters 9 to 11. And where we left off, um, Jesus made an invitation to all who are weary and burdened and promised that in him is rest for our souls. Whether you were here or not, uh, you might have heard these verses before. Let me read them out for you. It's just the end of the last chapter, chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, those are really beautiful words. They've been such a comfort to so many over millennia. What a beautiful invitation to come to Jesus and find rest for your souls. But have you ever wondered what that looks like on the ground? What does it mean to take on the light burden of Jesus? How would I know if I've come to Jesus? What would it feel like to find true rest? What does all of that actually look like in, in reality? Because one danger of a, a beautiful and comforting verse like this that we kind of return to again and again is that we can be tempted to, to lift it out of its context, lose sight of what it actually means uh, in, in the passage. We can turn it into mere sentimentality if we lose sight of what, it, what true rest in Jesus looks like. Because the Bible's not written as isolated sentiments or, or verses. Uh, and in fact, Matthew continues... Uh, here on in in chapter 12 and essentially shows us in story form what what that looks like in a really practical and tangible way. So that's where we're up to today. We're we're following on from these monumental promises of Jesus and then Matthew plays out for us in real time what what these promises look like on, on the ground. Here we see played out what it means that Jesus' burden is light in contrast to the heavy burden of of the Pharisees. We see played out what it means to find True rest in Jesus. And we're given, um, we're given two stories and a portrait. Uh, both the stories are about Jesus coming into conflict, about the nature of rest and, and of, of the Sabbath and of the law. Um, and then as Matthew takes a step back from Jesus, to Jesus' wider ministry, he plucks a portrait out of Isaiah and hangs it here for us to see um, because uh, rest in Jesus can't be separated from the character of Jesus. And so he... Hangs it there for us to see, to remind us of who Jesus is. 
And so today, we're going we're gonna to be looking at those first two stories where we'll see the, the heavy burden of the Pharisees' hyper-spirituality. Uh, and contrasted to that is the, is the true rest, which is ultimately found in Jesus. And then finally, we'll, we'll take a closer look at, at that portrait of Jesus from Isaiah, because rest in Jesus cannot be separated from the character of Jesus. So that's where we're headed. Uh, we're going to start by looking at the heavy burden of hyper-spirituality. That's why I've, how I've summarized kind of the, the Pharisees are doing here. And so, what is the hyper-spirituality? Let, let me first be clear by what I don't mean. Jesus is not condemning the Pharisees for being very, very spiritual. That's not what I mean by, by hyper-spirituality. It would be actually a really good thing if their only problem was that they were too spiritual, that they cared too much about the law, that they cared too much about following God. Jesus is not condemning them for being very spiritual. Rather, what I mean by hyper-spiritual is, is going beyond. Uh, the, the problem the Pharisees have is that they go way beyond what the Scriptures actually teach. They've built rules around rules to the point where the original point of the law has been forgotten. And they turn what was supposed to be a blessing into a burden for people. And so let's take a look at, at the story. In, in part one, Jesus is taking a leisurely stroll through the, the fields with his disciples. And his disciples pluck a few heads of grain on their way through. They crush them in their hands and have a, have a snack as they chat and continue to walk. And to us, that doesn't sound like something very controversial, does it? Um, they're having a snack on a gentle stroll through, through the fields. But when the Pharisees see that, did, did you notice their reaction? They're, they're shocked by this. They say, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, as if they've seen something horribly offensive. Um, in fact, by, by the end of this, these encounters, uh, they're not just kind of upset or riled up. They're, they're putting together a plot to kill Jesus. So whatever is going on here, it may not look like a big deal to us, but it certainly was to the Pharisees. So let me explain. I think there's a few things going on in the background here. One is that the, the Pharisees, uh, they cared a whole lot about the law and about the Sabbath, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. The Old Testament has lots to say about the Sabbath, lots to say about the importance of the Sabbath and the reasons for the Sabbath. It makes pretty clear that uh, before Jesus' time, um, every person in, in Israel should take that day off to cease from their regular work to remember God. But given how much it says about the importance of the Sabbath, it says surprisingly little about the pragmatics of it. The principles are clear, but the practicalities are not drawn out in, in nearly as much detail. And so the Pharisees, in response to this, in their zeal for kind of black and white, in, in their need to know that they've ticked all the boxes, uh, what they did, they went and added to this, they, they wrote up, 39 categories of, of work. They tried to really define, if we're not supposed to work, what does that look like? And they wrote up 39 different categories of, of what work is, and they, that became the new standard for them. One of those categories was gathering a harvest, which included things like picking or pruning or plucking. And so it might not look like work to us, but for them, they've got a category on their head that they, they see this happening and that it ticks over what, what these guys are doing is wrong. They're breaking the Sabbath. They're, um, they're going against the rules that we have on the Sabbath. And so what looks like just a gentle, leisurely stroll with Jesus uh, turns out to be a great offense to them. But the thing that set them off here really wasn't the principles or the reason for the Sabbath. It really wasn't any kind of really clear command in the Old Testament. Rather, um, 
rather than going deeper into the law, they've actually added rules upon rules and lost sight of what it was about in the first place. Um, it's kind of like, this is sort of a ridiculous scene, but bear with me for a second. Imagine you've, uh, you've got a picnic ready, you're going out with some, some friends to the beach, and you're looking for a grassy spot, you've parked your car, you're walking down, looking for a grassy spot in the shade to enjoy your picnic. And as you walk down, you notice a, a sign there that says, do not enter the water. There's powerful waves today. You think, okay, that's all right. We, we don't need to swim today. We'll just enjoy our picnic on the grass. We'll head home. It'll be a, a, a lovely day in the sun or in the shade if you've found, found the shady spot. Um, anyway, on your way there, a lifeguard approaches you and says, I'm sorry, I can't have anyone going in the water today. And so the beach is closed. You can't be here. So actually, we were just going to find a spot on the grass, have, have a picnic. And he says, well, well, no, that grass is too close to the beach. And so to make sure that you're not tempted to go into the beach and into the water, I'm fencing off the grass as well. And in fact, you up there on the footpath, get down off the footpath because the footpath leads to the grass, which is next to the, the beach, which is in, in the water. So no footpath. Hopefully you can see how, how by adding rules upon rules, uh, he's lost sight of what it was all about in the first place. This, this principle that was there to keep people safe has become this huge burden that, he, that he's unnecessarily putting on people. And so what is the heavy burden of, of hyper-spirituality? What I mean by that? Well, the Pharisees had a problem. And the problem was not that they were too spiritual. The problem was not that they took the law seriously. The problem was not that they cared too much. The problem was that they went way beyond what the law actually says. They built rules around rules. And in doing that, they lost sight of what it was all about in the first place. And they, so they turned what was supposed to be a blessing into a burden for people. So that's the heavy burden of the Pharisees' hyper-spiritual religion. And it's put here in direct contrast to that of Jesus. In, in fact, in some ways, in, not only contrast, but in direct conflict uh, with, with Jesus. As we see him come into conflict with the Pharisees and their views. And Jesus has just promised us that, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so it comes as no surprise to, to learn that he's, he takes a different approach. But the difference here is so pronounced that by the end, as I mentioned before, the, the Pharisees conspire together to try to kill Jesus. Now that should shock us. That, that should tell us something really big is going on here. Because these are not hit men gathered together. They, they're not gang member thugs. These are the religious leaders of the day. Proper, pious, religious elite. And whatever it is that Jesus has said here has been so controversial that it's enough to, to tip them over to, to need, feel the need to take him out, to shut him down at whatever the cost. And so we've already seen something of how the Pharisees thought about rest, about the Sabbath, about the law, how they really distorted it into something far beyond what it was ever supposed to be. Well, we're going to look now at Jesus' responses, and, and as we begin to understand Jesus' view of rest, we'll see just how drastically different it is to the Pharisees. Um, and as we do that, let me, let me first say that Jesus was pro-rest, pro-Sabbath, now, he and his disciples, if you read the rest of the gospel, they kept the Sabbath. They um, respected it as kind of a, a structure. Um, he doesn't require that of all of his followers necessarily in the same way, but um, Jesus is not opposed to, to the Sabbath in itself. What he takes issue with is how the Pharisees are applying it. And so he starts by pointing out something, something of what I've already said. The, the Pharisees' burden is heavier than the law itself. They've gone beyond even the, the strictness of the law. And he draws this out with two examples of where 
even with the, within the stories of the Old Testament, ex exceptions to the rule existed. Even within the Old Testament, you don't see the kind of rigidity that the Pharisees were enforcing on people. Um, two times this happens. Uh, one in verse 3, uh, David and his companions are allowed to eat the, the bread that was unlawful for them to eat. If you go and look up that story, you see that the priests um, hear about their mission, hear about what they're doing, um, and make the decision to make an exception to the rule, um, to allow them to eat the bread that's normally set aside for, the, for only the priests. Um, similarly, in the second example, uh, in verse um, 5, the priests themselves, in a sense, kind of formally, break the, the principles of the Sabbath every week, and that they continue their work in uh, making sacrifices on the Sabbath. In fact, if anything, they, they work more on the Sabbath as they have extra duties to keep that day holy and set aside. And so these stories show us how the, the Pharisees are, are really going beyond Scripture, applying a more rigid structure than even the law itself presents. And Jesus shows as well how in their obsession with rules, they've actually missed what it's really about. They've missed the forest for the trees. He, he, he gives us some hints as to what the law is really about and where true rest is found. Um, as, as we keep reading, he's spoken about the uh, happenings in the temple. And then in verse 6, he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So the first and most significant, magnificent thing that the Pharisees had missed was that they, they didn't realize who they were talking to. They didn't understand how the law applies because they didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand just how much he changed in coming uh, to be a man. So the, to the Israelites, the temple was a wonder because that, that was a reminder that God came to dwell among them. That God was not far off and distant, but he was, he was with them. But what the Pharisees failed to see is that God is dwelling right in front of them. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, so much greater than the temple, because God who created the world, who created the Sabbath, uh, is there before them, explaining what the Sabbath is. Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath, is the one that they're accusing of misunderstanding it. And so like the priests who had their special role, which meant that the Sabbath didn't apply to them in the same way, so Jesus, the one who is there at creation, has every right to define it as he wills. We've seen that the Pharisees building rules around rules, and in, in a sense, they really had no, no right to enforce them, but Jesus does. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and however he explains or keeps the Sabbath, well, you can be pretty sure that that's how it's supposed to be, because Jesus stands behind all those laws. Jesus went before all those laws. And now Jesus says that something greater is here. Jesus is God among us, and he brings a new way of relating to God and the law. So that's the first thing the Pharisees had missed. They, they didn't understand who Jesus was. The second is, is what the law was there about, law, law was there for in the first place. Um, he says in verse 7, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. I think what Jesus is saying here is that when God gave the law, God was never primarily interested in, in seeing people um, tick every box there, ne never primarily interested in um, giving people a, a measure. 
rather, one of the reasons that why God gave the law was to help them to live justly towards one another, to act with mercy and grace. And the Pharisees have completely missed that. They were obsessed with sacrifice and ritual and law-keeping, and yet in applying the law, they were harsh and cold to those around them. It kind of completely undoes what God intended in the law. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. What God was primarily interested in was a change of the heart, that they would relate to one another justly. And that's why Jesus asked the question, uh, so when, when they asked Jesus the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus explains that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Because Jesus is drawing them back to the real reasons behind the law, rather than just the rules themselves. God desires mercy. So I think that's, that's really important for us, because we can so easily slip into thinking that to be religious or to be a Christian, you need to first do this or that thing, or we need to maintain such and such a status quo. You may feel the heavy burden of keeping up with uh, religiousness, but now Jesus here def- redefines all of that. He, he directly opposes this kind of obsessive law-keeping that, that forgets what is at the heart of it. He, he redirects us to, to look at God's heart, to remember who He is, and start from there. Jesus shows that He's much less concerned with the appearance of good, and much more concerned with, with actually doing good. That sounds like a kind of silly contrast in some ways, but um, I think that's really significant, that Jesus is much less concerned with the appearance of good and more concerned with actually doing good. Rather than take on the expectations of those around him, Jesus sees a need before him and he heals the man, even to, dis- dismay, even to the dismay of those looking around him, those um, that the Pharisees have their kind of standards and they set this up. It, we're told right from the beginning that it's set up as a trap. Um, and yet Jesus, concerned with truly doing good rather than the appearance of good by the standards of those around him, um, heals the man because he sees that that is a good that he can do. Uh, um, and t- to show those around him that um, yeah, at the heart of it all is mercy and good. And so Jesus displays, I think for us as well, that the, the courage to do good, even if it gives up the appearance of good by whoever's standards might be watching you at the time, Jesus frees us to, um, to uh, trust him, rest in him and, and follow him, uh, despite what social or cultural standards might be around. And so he breaks out of the, the pattern of the religiousness of the day and he shows how he can, fulfills and completes the law and then it's no surprise then, given the, the radical shift in thinking around the law, that the religious elites are shocked and feel the need to shut this down because they can see that what Jesus is claiming here is going to change everything. They're the ones that are so concerned with outward appearance, but Jesus is saying um, at the heart of it all is mercy. And Jesus is saying that he has come to make a new way of relating to God. So we've had a look at the heavy burden of the Pharisees' hyper-spirituality where, where they build rules upon rules and then enforce them on those around them. But in doing so, they, they've completely missed what, was, what, what the law was there for in the first place. Um, first, they'd missed that the law was supposed to be there to help them to act 
justly to, to those around them, to, to do good and to love and serve those around them. But instead, they applied it in cold harshness. But more importantly, they had missed who Jesus is. Uh, he's come to lift the burden of religious law, that he's Lord of the Sabbath, and he is the, the, the one who actually has the right to add or subtract or redefine the laws because he was there when they were created. So Jesus has pointed out this uh, rest they were looking for in the Sabbath. It, it doesn't come from ticking a whole lot of boxes or following particular rules. Actually, the, that rest is ultimately found in him, in knowing who he is, and entrusting yourself fully to him and trusting all things to him. So that rather than anxiously hoping that you've done enough, you can rest securely in the knowledge that he has. So I think partly to draw us back to the character of Jesus, Matthew hangs this portrait here for us from Isaiah. And this is where we're going to finish today. Um, as we approach here in verse 15, the tense changes. Matthew gives us an overview of lots of things that Jesus was doing in this time. He withdrew, um, he healed all who were with him, and yet he warned them not to tell others about him. This was a time of quiet and solitude, but also of compassion and mercy for Jesus. Um, and then Matthew hangs for us here this portrait of Jesus from Isaiah. And I think a part of that is to, to draw us into the character of Jesus. And so just, just listen. I'm just going to read through the whole thing and let it draw you into the character of Jesus. This is what God says about his servant in Isaiah, who we now know to be Jesus. He says, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. I wonder if you were to choose just a, just a couple of words to summarize. I wonder which ones you would choose for that section. Uh, if you've got a pen in your hand, why don't you write down a couple? What, what, what do you reckon are the, the key things you see in the character of Jesus in this quote? I don't know exactly what I'd choose, but I think a couple might be there at the, the beginning when Jesus describes himself. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Now, just as Jesus has described himself earlier, I, I do think Matthew is still expounding that for us, showing how this is fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is gentle and humble of heart. We see him not, uh, he's not a rioter or a um, He's not crying out or quarreling in the streets. I love the metaphors of the, the bruised reed and the smoldering wick that show his gentleness. His, uh, we, we've just recently um, had to prune back one of our indoor plants. It's a big monstera um, that was sitting at a convex corner in a room. So um, it was not really a great place for it because it meant we had to kind of expand our walking line to get around the monstera. Um, the other reason is because Albert would never extend his, war, uh, his walking line. He'd always run through. It's about kind of head height for him. And he'd just kind of swat all the leaves as he went through, often kind of grabbing to feel the different textures and bending and breaking. Um, and so we, we realized this was not the, the right spot for a Monstera. We moved it up, and as we did, we realized that kind of all the bottom leaves that he's gotten to were all kind of broken and scrunched up and torn. And so we decided, well, we'll have to kind of give it a bit of a, a renovation, a bit of a makeover. We pruned back all the kind of broken leaves and just left all the, the best ones. Um, 
And now it's kind of, as I return to that, it's, it's kind of my instinct when I see a leaf that's been broken to, to prune it off because it's kind of much nicer when all of the leaves are perfectly together and perfectly kind of um, beautiful. But how amazing is it to think that Jesus' instinct is the opposite when it comes to, to us? That a bruised reed he will not break. Uh, we, our, our kind of instinct is to clean things up, make them look right. But Jesus' instinct is to come alongside the bruised reed. Uh, even, even the smoldering wick on a candle. Um, both of these would have th- been things that were relatively useless in their sight. Reeds had lots of um, purposes for kind of measuring straight lines and this sort of thing, but a bruised one couldn't do that. Similarly, a smoldering wick on a candle usually meant that um, it was burning up fuel in, in ways that it weren't actually bringing light and, and, and whatever else. So the natural thing to do would be to snuff it out. But we get this picture of Jesus uh, coming alongside the things that aren't quite as they're supposed to be and, and gently, you can imagine him with a smoldering wick, gently fanning it back into flame. And these are, of course, metaphors for the way that Jesus relates to the broken and the vulnerable people um, among us. We're, when I'm, as I said, when a monstera leaf breaks now, my instinct is to prune it off. But when it comes to people, Jesus' instinct is the exact opposite. Jesus gently restores the brokenhearted, the heavily burdened, the weary. And the world is full of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Our church is full of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. And so how good is it that Jesus' instinct is to come alongside, to gently restore? I wonder what that would look like for us to do as well. Jesus is the one who gently restores the broken. But one really curious thing, I don't know if you noticed this as we read through before, did you notice that it has an end point? This is kind of the nature, the character of Jesus, to, to, be, to gently restore. But did you notice that uh, there's an end until... A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not snuff out until, until he has brought justice through to victory. That is to say, the character of Jesus is um, gentle, humble of heart to come alongside um, those, but a time is coming when, when he will bring justice to victory. He's already de- dealt the crushing blow in his death on the cross. Uh, We see justice come to victory there, but ultimately we're still waiting for the day when he returns to bring justice ultimately to victory. And why is it that that gentleness is no longer needed? Well, I think a part of it is because from that day forward, uh, Jesus will set things right. In the new creation, the sickness and suffering and brokenness in our world will be eradicated. There won't be any bruised reeds, there won't be any smoldering ricks because uh, those things are no longer in our world. So what a great, great hope that is, that Jesus will bring justice to victory, he'll finally defeat sin and evil, and he will bring about, um, for those who trust in him, a new world without sickness and suffering and brokenness, without smoldering wicks and bruised reeds. And we long for that day. So just as, as we close, would you, would you pray with me that uh, thanking God for Jesus and praying that he would bring that day soon. Would you join me in prayer? Loving Father, we thank you for Jesus. 
we thank you that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light. And we pray that we would be people who um, come to him for rest, to fall in him, rest in him, that we would find rest for our souls. I thank you for the way that Jesus has redefined the law. He's made a way so that we don't have to uh, anxiously wonder if we've done enough, but that Jesus has done everything, that we can rest in, in, in what he has done instead of look to our own goodness. And we thank you that he has been victorious at the cross and we long for the day when he will ultimately bring justice to victory. We pray uh, especially for the bruised reeds and the, the, um, broke, and the smoldering wicks among us, for those that are hurting, those that are weary, those that are broken. And we pray that in your gentleness you would restore them. We pray for us as a church as well that, that we would be uh, gentle and patient with them as well. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.